very, very important to Joseph, who has already declared that Mary will be his wife, but the two of them would have not come together yet as husband and wife, but the two of them would have a son. Although we know that the Holy Spirit was the one that gave the seed. And in verse 21 of Matthew 1, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Mary's going to have a child, and that child is going to be named Jesus. He is the Savior. He is the one who has been prophesied. In verse 22, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. Joseph, you take Mary. She is to be your wife, and she's going to have a son, and his name is Jesus and Joseph obeyed. You know, the virgin birth of, is being a part of God's redemptive week. We find that the very opening verses of the gospel, according to John, and you might remember the gospel of John sets for us Jesus' deity. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. Right? And in verse 14, we find that that word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of only of the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And therefore, we consider Bethlehem when we consider that manger scene where Joseph and Mary and their little child, and we're reminded that this one is really God wrapped in human flesh. This was day one of God's redemptive week. In the fullness of time, the Messiah was born, Galatians 4.4, and is recorded for us there in Matthew 1 and verse 2. But let's move on to day two of this redemptive week, of being God's redemptive week. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the promise of redemption is what he brings. But then we get to the requirement of redemption. Jesus had to die, and his death was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 53, what some might call the zenith of Messianic prophecy. You might be familiar with all of the, which is said about the suffering Savior, which we know is Jesus the Christ. But I want you to notice in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, when it says that he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. God will look upon the sacrifice and he will be satisfied. It is the very demonstration of God's love when you see Jesus dying on that cross. It's also an appeasement of the wrath of God towards sin. But let's read on. That by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And so in Isaiah chapter 53, we have a, a messianic statement about Jesus, the one who would then die on that cross for the sins of the world. Day two of God's redemptive week was, the, was in the 33rd year of 
Jesus and his life here on this earth. When after he had suffered through an, an illegal trial that he was crucified on that cross of Calvary. We notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 where it makes it very clear that it was Jesus who became our sin offering on that particular day. Six hours, one Friday, he hung upon that cross. So awesome and so marvelous, if you will, was that particular event that things that would not ordinarily happen, happened. The earth shook. Not only that, for three hours that he was on the cross, there was a darkness that was upon the face of the earth. Unexplainable. This was a very monumental event when Jesus died. In fact, it's the very apex of human history. It is that time when right fought wrong and right won. When truth fought error and truth won. And so there on the cross, Jesus had died, and he had died once and for all, according to Hebrews 10.10, by the which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All Jesus had to do is die one time, and he could redeem all of humanity. You think about those Old Testament sacrifices that were offered and the slaughter that took place, the stench that was in the air, all as a reminder of the seriousness of sin. But thank God we don't have to do such today because there has been one sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice for all of mankind, for all of time. And that is when Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross. We're talking about God's redemptive week. Day one of redemptive week was the promise of his, of his uh, redemption, his virgin birth. Day two was the requirement of redemption, his death on the cross, and there was no other way. You know, I'm reminded of texts such as John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This death that he suffered was on behalf of the entire world. But then in Titus 3 and verse 14, we learn how he gave himself for us. When I think about us, I think about us. Those that are gathered here this morning. And then in Hebrews 2.9, he tasted death for every man. But when I think about Jesus' death, I like to remember Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. When he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me, and notice, and gave himself for me. It was very personal when he died on that cross. I think about that when I partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine, as we will hear in just a few moments. He died for me, that is, if I was the only one who was in need of salvation. 
He would have died on that cross so that I could have the hope of eternal salvation and gladly done so. This is the day, too, of God's redemptive week, the requirement of redemption. He died on the cross, but let's move to day three of God's redemptive week. You see, day three of God's redemptive week happened the third day after Jesus was nailed to the cross. In Acts, the second chapter, the apostle Peter would be preaching about Jesus and he would talk about that glorious resurrection of Jesus the Christ. He quoted Psalm 16, verse 10, where David spoke of whose soul was not left in Hades, someone who would die, but his body would not suffer corruption. In verse 25 of Acts chapter 2, we find that Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost, for David says concerning him, Peter's quoting David now, for David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Look at verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And we read about that. He is he seeing this before the uh, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. And so on the third day, following Jesus' death on the cross, we have the third day of that redemptive week. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So the glorious of his resurrection. His resurrection was a very notable event and it remained so because we can say confidently that we do not serve a dead Christ but a living, reigning Savior. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul argues on behalf of our own resurrection as well. This we too are to be raised from the dead one day. And he says this, if you don't believe in your own resurrection, then you must not believe in the very resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Because he says, your resurrection is based upon his resurrection. Now, in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain? And your faith is also vain or empty? After all, earlier in the same chapter, Paul had, had, had said that the, here's the heart of our message. What is it? How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again according on that third day according to the scriptures. But he said, 
if Christ be not risen, then our message is in vain. It's empty. Verse 15, he says, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Some were saying that there was no resurrection of the dead. Right? But wait, we've been preaching the message that Jesus himself rose from the dead. And he goes on to say in verse 16, he said, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Yet ye are what? Yet still in your sins. I mean, the Messiah had to die on that cross to take away your sins. But if he hasn't risen on that third day, you're still yet in your sins. You're still be like a many Jews that are even today that are still looking for the Messiah. Which is not true because here is our Messiah. Here is our Christ. And therefore, just like the death of Jesus is a cardinal doctrine of the Bible, that must be believed and understood. So is his resurrection. Because you see, if Jesus is still dead, you're not saved. Your sins are not forgiven. It's based upon an empty tomb. Verse 18. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ Jesus are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If I'm just looking to Jesus for some comfort right now in this life, and I have nothing more in the life to come, we are just most miserable, he says. What hope do you have, right? There's really no comfort in that. And so Paul says, you're going to be raised one day. And how do we know this to be true? Because Jesus himself was raised from the dead. And so on the third day after his resurrection, there were some women who were at the tomb of Jesus. And there was also an angel there who declared something that was very, very important to them. Go with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 28. And this is very early in, on the first day of the week. And the text says there in verse 2 that there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He's not here. <laughs> for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. He's no longer in the grave. He has triumphed over death and the grave. And so just like the death of Jesus would be the very heart of the gospel message, it is connected to his resurrection, which likewise is the heart of the gospel message. For the death of Jesus means nothing without his resurrection. And so that resurrection along with the death that he died is connected to our salvation and our own forgiveness as well. For in Romans 6, 3 and 4, there we read how that when we are baptized, that we are 
dying to sin. Buried in that watery grave where we leave our sins figuratively and then raised to walk in newness of life knowing that we are sa- have salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. You know, one cannot get closer to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus than when he is baptized in that watery grave for the remission of his sins and comes forth from that watery grave. God's redemptive week, right? Day, uh, his virgin birth, day one. God's uh, dying on, or Christ dying on the cross, day two. And then his glorious resurrection, day three. But then let's move to day four, if you will. Day four, we find the assurance, the assurance of our redemption. The assurance of our redemption takes place when Jesus then ascends to be with the Father in heaven. Some 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus, having met with his disciples on numerous occasions, eating and drinking with them, and had actually been seen by some 500 brethren at one time concerning, or, or according to 1 Corinthians 15, he's now ready to return to his Father. But before he returns, he gathers his apostles and he gives them what we most commonly call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, or 18 through 20, and Mark 16, 15 and 16. When he gives that Great Commission, he speaks of his authority. He says, all power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now you... Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Go into all the world. Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Son and of the Father and of the, uh, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to what? Observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus being that authoritative one, Right? gives them that great commission. And this with human eyes, they beheld as he ascended and eventually would leave their sight to where he saw them no more. But again, this was such a notable event. It was accompanied by angels. We go to then Acts chapter 1. And we notice in in verse 9 there, Acts chapter 1. And in verse 9, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And so we must ask the question here, because his ascension was especially important, because Jesus had just by his own authority commanded the disciples what to do. And likewise, as he ascends to heaven, the angels give them assurance that he's going to come again. So we got to ask this question. As we think about how that ascension fits with God's redemptive week. Where did he go? Where did he go? 
Where did Jesus go when he departed out of their sight? Well, Jesus had earlier stated to his disciples in John 14, 12, he says, I go unto my Father. I go unto my Father. Where is he going? He says, I'm going to my Father. I'm returning to heaven. Do you recall right before his death as he met with his disciples in the upper room? And John records all the things that took place in that upper room beginning in John 13 uh, and all the way up to John chapter 16 as well. You might recall that Jesus had spoken to his disciples about sending the comforter, that is his apostles, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, that he would send to them, John 16, 7. And verse 13 of that same chapter, he is going to guide you into all truth, he says to his apostles. And Jesus says, I need to go to my Father so I can send the Holy Spirit to you. And so I'm going to go back where I need to be, going back to the Father. I will send the Holy Spirit unto you to guide you into all truth. Now, how would these apostles know that Jesus would keep his word? Well, you remember that Jesus had said to his apostles, he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. Luke 24, 49. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And so it was about 10 days later that the power would come. Now, can you think about those apostles in that time between Jesus' ascension and between that day of Pentecost? They were patiently waiting. Patiently waiting. He says he's going to the Father and we'll know when he is there, when something important happens, when we are endued with power from on high. The question is this, do we have confidence that Jesus made it to where he was going? Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire and it sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What does that tell us? That's the answer to our question, isn't it? It tells us that Jesus is not only powerful I'm going back to my Father in heaven. I will send the comforter unto you. But it also says that he keeps his promise. He always keeps his promise. Now these apostles can know as surely that Jesus is where he said that he was going. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now Peter would later state. That what you're seeing on this day of Pentecost is that which what Joel himself had written about concerning the Spirit. And so it is that day four of God's redemptive week is the assurance of redemption, his ascension. Now, do you want to know what happened on the other side when Jesus got to heaven? We know what happened on that side. It was just as Jesus had promised these apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. And therefore that which they preached was that with the approval of heaven, they were preaching a message that was given to them from on high. But Daniel, the prophet, 
spake concerning what happened on the other side. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7, if you will. Daniel chapter 7. He tells us what happened when Jesus gets back to heaven. And go to verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not be passed away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. You see, that's what happened when Jesus got to the other side. There were those that are in this world today who will say, well, when Jesus comes again, we're going to be able to crown him king. No, he's already king. He's already got a kingdom. A kingdom can't be a kingdom without a king, and a kingdom cannot be a kingdom without its subjects. Thus you and I as children of God. What they don't understand is when Jesus went back to heaven, that's when the coronation took place for him to be king. When Jesus returned to heaven, there was a coronation there, and Jesus was crowned. And those of us today who are in his church are likewise citizens of that kingdom. And he rules over that kingdom, which is spiritual in nature. He rules over that kingdom as the king. Day four, God's redemptive week, Jesus ascended on high. Now let's move to day five quickly. The fulfillment of redemption. The fulfillment of redemption is his plan of salvation. This moves us back to Acts chapter 2, if you will, and the preaching of the gospel. Some 10 years later, after Jesus, or some, yeah, 10 days later, did I say years? Some 10 days later, after Jesus ascended on high, we have Peter and the rest of the apostles endued with power from on high, and these apostles started preaching. It's the perfect time for them to start preaching this message. All of this was planned by God because there were so many gathered from every nation under heaven. You had those who were Jews gathering in Jerusalem, and they were gathering for the Pentecost. And so Peter and the apostles had this large audience to whom they could speak. And so as they stood to speak, we learned that every man heard them speak in their own language. And so when the apostles stood to speak, it wasn't a bunch of gibberish, as uh, so many that uh, you hear on television sometimes so-called preachers who claim they're speaking in tongues. These were intelligible languages. Everyone gathered there could hear a preacher preaching in their tongue, and they could understand. They didn't need an interpreter. That was miraculous because these apostles had not studied the languages and were ordinary men. But because they were miraculous endowed by the Holy Spirit, they could speak the language of those who were gathered on that day. Now, on that day of Pentecost, right, it was recorded of what Peter had said. Remember the heart of the gospel message that we talked about, 1 Corinthians 15? 
the very death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, that's what he's going to be talking about. Whom he said, or when he said, ye have with wicked, weakened, wicked hands crucified and slain the very Son of God. That's convicting, isn't it? That's right. You're responsible, he says. Now, not all gathered that day had literally nailed Jesus to that cross. After all, the Roman soldiers did that. And not all that were gathered that day were just Jewish leaders who condemned him to death. No, of course not. That was a relatively small number. But those who were there knew about his death. And because of their sins, they were guilty of the death of Jesus. And likewise, that puts all of us there as well. Because we have sinned doesn't yes we are there too in the crowd represented at least by those who were gathered some 2,000 years ago our own sins put them on that cross and so Peter says you're responsible for it and yet at the same time he gives them hope because that same one you crucified Paul says God had raised him from the dead Now, according to Acts chapter 2 and verse 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he had shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. These apostles knew he's where he said he was going. They believed it. We watched him with human eyes ascend to heaven and we're sure that he is now seated at the right hand of God. We could not do what we're doing, speaking in this way. We could not do that if it had not been the Holy Spirit upon us. So convicting was his message that the text says the crowd that had gathered that day were overwhelmed. They were cut to the heart, pricked to the heart, and they cried out, men and brethren, What must we do? Is there anything that we can do? Is there any way at all that we can be forgiven of this heinous sin? This heinous crime? Crucifying Jesus on that cross. Well, your sins put them there. And if our sins put them there, then how can we receive the forgiveness of our sins? And on this particular day, In God's redemptive week, Peter told the crowd, tells us what we must do. Then Peter said unto them to repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The plan of salvation. We learn from other passages that penitent believers who had confessed Jesus when they were baptized had received the remission of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Every sin being washed away. And here's what happened on that very day. Verse 41 of Acts 2. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And in verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. What is the church? It's the saved. God's redemptive week. Day five, the fulfillment of redemption. Those who were lost in sin now can be saved by the very precious blood of Jesus. Now, all these days have already occurred. 
but the next two have not. Day six, the reward of redemption. He is coming again. God's redemptive week is all about us getting ready to meet him. And on the sixth day of his redemptive week, God, Jesus comes again. That's still out in the future. But that could be any moment now as well. It could be today. It could be a long time from now. But the point that we want to stress is that we ready. The entire Old Testament was written with this theme in mind that Jesus is coming. Get ready. He's the Messiah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He has arrived. Let's get ready. He is here. Acts through Revelation. Get ready. He's coming again. Are you ready? Jesus made that promise there in the upper room. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. John 14, 1 through 3. In verse 6 of that same chapter, he tells us how to get there. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Jesus says, I'm coming again. Likewise, Paul would argue, remember, for our own resurrection and when that is to take place on that last day, that last day of human history, is when Jesus comes again. And so it is that when he comes again, we will be raised from the dead and it will all happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It's kind of amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? But what is the purpose of his coming again? Primarily to get those who have been redeemed and take those who have been redeemed to heaven with him. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Now again in verses 13 and 14 of the same text, Paul connects our resurrection to Jesus' resurrection. But I would have not you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. See, God's redemptive week, day six, Jesus is coming again. God's redemptive week. Remember after God had created the heavens and the earth, the text says he rested work was completed did you know that when jesus comes again we then enter a time of rest that's right really no time is associated with that it's just one long eternal for lack of a better term day eternal that's just it day seven is the rest of his redemption the rest of redemption. 
Revelation 14, 13 tells us, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Sometimes eternity is called an eternal day. Now here on earth, we are familiar with the day beginning and the day ending. And we understand how that the morning and the afternoon and the evening work. It leads to another day, doesn't it? Right? And it's a continual process as long as we're here upon this earth. 24 hours in each day, and then we enter into another day. And likewise, we understand how the sun and the moon play a role in the seasons, for example. And they play a role with regard to the weather patterns and the things of that nature. But here is why, or what I want you to remember, that in heaven there is no need of the sun, nor the moon, nor the stars. Because in Revelation 21, the Lamb is the light. And it also says, Revelation 21, that there is no night there. Therefore, you don't have to have a morning, an afternoon, an evening. And we look to the next day. No. Because it's just one eternal. One eternal. Without ever having a nighttime. Because you can't put out the light. That light's heaven. That light is Jesus himself. This is God's redemptive week. What I've done is gone to God's word and I've shown you these eventful days as recorded in the Bible that's more important to you and to me than the actual days of creation. God's redemptive week means more to us than even that. Isn't that interesting? That in a couple of chapters God speaks about his creation week but the whole book is about his redemptive week. It tells me that's a whole lot more important, doesn't it? God's redemptive week. It's all for you. You know, there might be someone here this morning who needs the name, the name of Christ as Savior. They need to, to put the Lord on in baptism based upon their faith in believing that he's the Son of God repentance of their sins and making that good confession before these many witnesses that Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God. And when you go down into the waters of baptism, buried in that watery grave, and you rise to walk in newness of life, you're a child of God. You're a Christian. And now to live that life in accordance to His will, to carry on, to help others, to have that same opportunity that was given you, so that they could go to heaven and be with God in Christ as well and all those faithful that have gone on before. If you're here as a child of God and you've wandered away, time is back to come back now because tomorrow may be too late. Won't you come as together we stand and sing?